Thank you for listening to the Epic Realms podcast. I appreciate all of you listening. If you take a few seconds to listen to this, we've got a sponsor that we want to talk about. And so before we get into that show, please stick around, listen to the sponsor, and then enjoy the amazing show. Guys, we are currently sponsored by Magic Spoon. If you guys don't know what it is, it's an awesome cereal subscription where you get cereal mailed to you. It's zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four to five net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only about 140 calories. For me, it's gluten-free. Many of you know I'm a celiac and I can't have wheat and barley and rye and all that kind of stuff in my food. It makes me sick. And it's a good alternative for me. There's not a lot of cereals that I can have. It's healthy food and it doesn't taste like healthy food. Let me, I mean, what am I saying? It's its not tasting like that. It's really good stuff. So we've got some sample boxes. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Like I really like the peanut butter crunch. My wife, she prefers the fruity. They also have cereal bars and stuff like that. So if you guys are interested and you want to try it out, Try it out. The code is STREAM1901, S-T-R-E-A-M-1901, to get $5 off your first purchase. Guys, I highly suggest you check it out. Even if you don't think you want to buy it, go into their website and take a look and see if it's anything you might be interested in. And if it is, then use the code. And if it's not, then psh, that's it. You're done. Anyhow, that being said, let's get on with the show. For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Our guest today is the lead, de lead designer for Evil Genius Games. He's worked for various other companies, including Cobalt Press. He's here to chat about everyday heroes and a modern die 20 system. Please welcome Siegfried Trent to Epic Realms. How are you doing? Hi, everybody. I'm doing pretty good. Happy to be here. So do me a favor, because I, I understand about the game, and I've I talked to some of the people at Gen Con. Tell me a bit about yourself. Tell our audience a bit about yourself and kind of how you got into the gaming industry. Okay. Um, so my name is Siegfried Trent. And from an early age, you see, I played my first role-playing game maybe when I was in sixth grade, something along those lines. My grandparents bought me Redbox. Oh. And, uh, you know, I, I looked through those books and I was like, what does it all mean? It's wonderful, <laughs> but I don't understand it, right? I'm like, man, how do you actually play this game? But I thought it was great. And then I met some friends up in Alaska where I was living at the time who had played Dungeons and Dragons before. And, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history. That's how I got into things. And even from, uh, you know, from the early days, I was uh, kind of a game master attracted player. Right. So uh, I started game mastering pretty early. And that means you start writing your own stuff. And I also would, you know, start to get magazines and they would have little game systems in them. Okay. And so I would start to make little expansions for the game systems that I had. And then as a teenager, I started writing some of my own little games and self-publishing them. And okay. I'm going down to Kinko's, doing fold copy. Nice. Taking some, some clip art off the internet and painting chainmail on people. 
uh, you know, really simple stuff. And I put that in the game store, my local game store, like, you know, sold in two game stores across the entire Seattle metro area. Um, you know, basically friends of mine and, you know, I'd have like 10 copies there. And then, you know, five years later, there's eight copies there, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I've been in, in the biz for a while, but then I, I met, uh, you know, some people from Wizards of the Coast, uh, Jeff Grubb and uh, Wolfgang Bauer uh, through Magic the Gathering and Legend of the Five Rings card games. Okay. I was just playing in the local card game scene and met some of these folks and, uh, you know, just became friends. And so I was in their gaming group and that sort of thing. And so I think my first stuff published with Wolfgang was he was starting Cobalt Quarterly and he's like, man, I need some articles. So can you write some articles? I'm like, yeah, sure. I can knock out some articles. No problem. So I wrote some articles for that. Uh, and then, you know, we were kind of early on, helped them publish the magazine and pack it and ship it out to people and stuff. Uh, and then later on, uh, one point he wanted to get into doing some feat books and I was known for the netbook of feats, which is, uh, when third edition came out, I really was excited about the OGL, right? Yeah. Yeah. It meant anybody could write gaming products right. compatible with Dungeons and Dragons and not be like pretending or kind of, you know, in shame or, or whatever the case may be. It was official. Right. Right. So I thought, well, this is wonderful. And I found some people making feats. Feats was a new mechanic. I right. love modular things. I love battle tech, making mechs. I loved Starfleet battles, designing spaceships, anything where I get to like customize design stuff in the game. I'm just all over that. Right. Yeah. So feats were amazing. I'm just like, it was the best thing ever for D&D. So I started writing feats and I went on the internet looking for other people doing it. And I found this uh, project, the Netbook of Feats or the Community Council Netbook something. I forget exactly what the whole organization was called. Oh, these guys are great. So I joined the Netbook of Feats and I started writing some feats. And then very quickly, the guy who was in charge of it had to, you know, had to go for whatever reason it right. was. And so I took over that and I ran that for like maybe five years or so as kind of editor-in-chief. Nice. And uh, it was all about getting fans to, to write stuff for the first time, right. pictures, whoever. And then me and like five other guys were kind of this panel and we would review and refine and edit these things with the author's permission to try and get it to like a really professional quality. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, both in, in rules design and in kind of the way it's written and following the standards. Uh, and so, you know, we just had a lot of people and we worked with them like this and we published a network of feats and it ended up in a whole bunch of other early D20 publications. So I was known for that. So Wolfgang was like, yeah, I want some feat books. And I was like, great, I can write feat books. Um, so we made the advanced feat series, which is, was based on the Pathfinder first edition uh, advanced classes. Uh, if it might have been advanced player's guide, I forget the name of the product, yeah. but there were new classes, Magus, Alchemist, some other things. Yeah. And so the these were, guide. Yeah. yeah, so these were books of feats for those classes, but also that anybody could use. Cause one of my feat design philosophies was make it available to everybody. Don't restrict it. Yeah. Obviously if it's a smiting feat, only paladins or other classes that might have a smiting feature could use it. But we never like this is a paladin feat, this is a fighter feat, right? Right, right? So so they were broad, and then we did complete advanced feats where we brought all the feats together. And I would do character builds in there as well, showing you how to use the feats and multi-class to make very unique builds. And then that's because that's my thing, is building things, right? Yeah. Um what was your so key to what was your key for keeping stuff balanced? You know, because obviously <laughs> like some people could be like, this is a thing, and then it's like that can <laughs> that one feat destroys a game. Uh, did you have a, like a, a strategy for keeping things balanced? Yeah. So 
you know, it's kind of twofold, I guess. Is a one you measure against what exists in the core rule books, right? What's what's canon? Those aren't always balanced, though. Uh, right, so, right, right, right. You know, some feeds, not all feeds are made equal for sure. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a little bit of a difficult standard. The other is uh, we eventually built ourselves this big combat spreadsheet for uh, third edition. And so we really, and this is something we do for everyday heroes too. I, I you know, made a new one um, that simulates the combat and it does a matrix of attack and damage and accuracy and all this stuff to basically calculate average damage per turn under given conditions and things and makes it a graph. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a fair bit of work, but once you get set up then it's pretty easy and you can just plug in the, the impact things have on combat. Out of combat, it's a lot harder to balance. It's really, that's very setting specific. Yeah. Uh, which is something, you know, we get into on Everyday Heroes because in uh, one setting, uh, you know, in Highlander, uh, it, it would be normal for your hero not to be able to be killed. Uh, but in the base Everyday Heroes world, well, that would seem pretty powerful, right? right? Um, you're immortal, geez, uh, that's a good feat. Yeah. So, there are certain things that are just inherently to the setting are going to be different. Uh, and so balance is really about thinking about the setting and how it's supposed to feel and then targeting the experience of using this feat or ability in that world and how it feels. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so a feat's supposed to have a certain kind of level of feeling about equivalent to like a class ability. Uh, you like a pretty good class ability. And so you just kind of have to gut check that one, right? Based on your experience. Yeah. Well, and you guys have probably like a crew of people looking at it and like, okay, well, you, one person will look at it and go, yeah, this is balanced. And somebody goes, yeah, but what about with this, this, and this? And it's like, oh, yeah. right. That's a, that's a whole thing right there. <laughs> yeah. Network of Feats, we had like a five quality, like there were five different ratings. And then each of the five of us would rate each feat on one to five on each of these items. And then, uh, you know, and then we would calculate averages and we had certain thresholds to get into the book, right? And we wouldn't like say your feet's never going to make it, really. We would work with you to try and get it to raise those levels so that it could pass the bar and get in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for everyday heroes, it's a little different. There's two kind of chief designer, game designers currently, myself and uh, Chris Goober Ramsley. Uh, he likes to be called Goober, by the way. Not, okay. Not, Giving that's that's kind of his his um, his name catchphrase kind of thing. So uh, he and I um, are the chief game designers in in the company, but we have lots of advisors and people who give their opinion. Dave, of course, who's in charge of the company, and Jeff Grubb, uh, Stan Brown was in there, and now we've got uh, Owen, who's the our new editor in chief. And so they all look at stuff and kind of you know give us a little reality check on things, and yeah. we go back and forth with each other, and you know really anybody, and then. You know, once we're getting, we think we've got the draft together, then we go out to our playtesters. We've got a pretty big pool of volunteer playtesters, especially for the core rulebook. And so we ran, run stuff by them and get their feedback and analyze that, try to see, you know, there's always going to be some outliers. Everybody's going to have different opinions about things. But how did you guys try to look for trends? And how did you guys approach the whole playtest system? Because obviously, like, you guys ended up doing a Kickstarter to kickstart. Uh, but you guys had to have had stuff already in the works before the Kickstarter, I'm assuming, or was it just yeah. like, we have this idea, let's kickstart it and see where it goes. And where did you, like, how do you find the play testers and, and, you know, make sure that they try and keep stuff quiet? Yeah. You know, I guess we weren't too worried about the keeping stuff quiet. Uh, 
what we didn't want is people to like share our files on the internet, right? right. That's not good, right? Because yeah. then then it goes around and people are like, is this the final game? Like, no, no, it's playtest stuff. Like, you know. Um, so I would say like, so I started working on the game uh, in December last year, kind mm -hmm. of doing my research part. And I really started writing it in January, partly for tax reasons. <laughs> so, <Yep. laughs> you know, so in January, I started writing the game. Uh, and we got into playtesting after about two months, I think, uh, two or three months. Um, we started to do playtesting, and then the Kickstarter was about a month after that, like just kind of, or after the tail end, I forget exactly, the playtesting. Yeah. So when we started the Kickstarter, we had the core rules written. So we had a complete set of core rules. Okay. They were going to change a little bit after that because we were still in the process of editing and design. So editing was going on during uh, our Kickstarter. So that's kind of where we were. And then the cinematic adventures, we planned them out, but we really hadn't started writing them because we you got to get the core rules written where you can make expansions, right? So it's got to order operations. Um, and so we've gotten uh, some of those done now and we're still working on some other ones. So that's kind of a rolling process. Right. Uh, as you imagine with, with two writers or two game designers, we have other writers who do the adventures for the cinematic adventures. And then we bring yeah. all that stuff together, kind of merge it and smooth it over that process. Um, uh, where was I at? Yeah, so so when we did the Kickstarter, the rules were written, and we knew exactly what the game would be, and we had our licenses nailed down for the cinematic adventures that we we're going to present. That was the main thing. We had to wait for the Kickstarter. We had to get those papers signed. Right. Um, and you know, when we first put the Kickstarter out, people are like, "Really, you guys have like eight movie licenses? <laughs> right. You guys for real?" You know, there was a certain amount of doubt, and we were like, yeah, it's for real. How do we demonstrate this? Because we can't show people contracts, right? Right, right. Contracts have NDAs attached to them and stuff, right? So, yeah, we just had to kind of get the studio partners to put stuff on their website and put stuff on the website. And, uh, you know, we had Jeff Grubb and some other important people who are not going to lie to you because they have, you know, a reputation out of the industry as part of the team. You know, that's yeah. intentional. Um, so that, you know, people recognize, oh, no, these guys are legitimate. They may be a new company and some new names, but, uh, the, uh, what we say we are doing is what we were doing. Um, yeah. So that was the thing we, the main thing we had to wait for the Kickstarter is to have all those ducks lined up. And then of course there's a little bit of work putting a Kickstarter together. Right. So, right. Was there an issue with like putting together the Kickstarter? Cause like you put together the Kickstarter, it's like, this is our idea of a goal this is kind of what we want to get. And we'll have a couple stretch goals just in case. And then it blows up. We were, let's say, I, I would say we were prepared for how much money we got. Okay. Right? Uh, it was in the range of the expectations. Okay. Um, so, you know, of course you always kind of want to go higher than you did. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, some people get blown away. That, that was not the case here. You know, we had Dave is a man of great ambition. Right. So he doesn't do things small. Right. And, um, you know, he's got eight movie licenses lined up, which is kind of right. unheard of. And this full on game, a spiritual successor to D20 Modern. So it's a big, ambitious project. Um, and so, yeah, we were ready for uh, potentially more, but we're very happy with where we got to. Um, we got all the material that we really wanted to make sure we'd get in there for the final game and everything, plus a few bonus items that were well, it'd be great if we have to do this, right? You know, yeah, yeah. I hadn't totally planned on it, but you put them in the stretch goals and you're like, if we hit there, then great, we'll do it. Um, otherwise, no. Nah. Uh, and so we hit a bunch of those and, um, you know. How was it? And I don't know if you can speak on this, but how was it planning like, okay, we're going to have a stretch goal for miniatures. Well, 
you've got to go and like, okay, well, we need to find somebody that can make these miniatures ahead <laughs> of time before we say we want to make this a stretch goal. Otherwise, we might yep. earn half of our, you know, our earnings on making the dang things, you know, budgeting out those stretch goals. How hard is that, especially when you have a bigger list like that? Yeah, pretty challenging. Now, I don't do the money side of things much, so I don't know exactly how those right. decisions get made. But we uh, we go pretty fast at Evil Genius Games. Like, uh, we're not meticulous. Uh, we don't have a 20-year plan kind of a thing. Dave is a dynamic guy, and I'm a pretty dynamic guy. So, uh, you know, sometimes we'll just be in the middle of the Kickstarter. We've got a couple ideas, right? We're like, hey, you know, we could do a Rambo miniature because we actually, our license gives us the likeness of Rambo, and we can use him. So it's like, do you want to do a Rambo miniature? I'm like, yeah, we should do a Rambo miniature. Can we do a Rambo miniature? Well, I'll find out. And then the answer is, yeah, we can. And, and it'll look really cool. And we're like, great, well, let's do it. Um, you know, and yeah, we, we consider the price. And, and you know, when you're doing a Kickstarter, uh, well, how many more dollars do you think it's going to bring in versus how much it costs to add that in? Yeah. Uh, there's some kind of hard math you have to do. But the, the truth is you don't know for sure. Right. And so, uh, you know, one of our biggest challenges to the Kickstarter was shipping. And that was more after the Kickstarter. You know, people are exactly how much is shipping going to cost. And you're like, ah, depends on how many stretch goals we reach and what people order. And, you know, there's a lot. There was at the time, you know, we we're on the tail end of COVID and there's a lot of uncertainty. So right. there's a lot of question marks for us. Right. And those are dangerous financially. Yeah. Um, and you want to tell people exactly what shipping is going to cost, but it's hard to do. Um, and so it kind of pushed that back and some people were a little worried about that. And when we did come out with costs, there was a little sticker shock on, you know, sending stuff to Europe. Yeah. Because our, our products come out not all together. We're not doing everything all at once. The original vision for the Cinematic Adventures was like a subscription almost, right? You're going to get one oh, okay. every month. Okay. We ended up doing two every two or three months, right? Um, instead, just the way production works and the way shipping works. Yeah. We learned that, yeah, doing something every month is more expensive, basically, <laughs> than doing it all at once. Right. Uh, but we weren't prepared to do it all at once. We had to separate it out. So we had some challenges with that, right? Uh, and I think that was one of the hardest things for Dave and War to, to kind of manage customer expectations. Uh, but also keep an eye on the bottom line uh, and balancing those two things is definitely, I think, a challenge for every Kickstarter. Yeah, for sure. Um, and was was a challenge for us, especially first time for us. We had some advisors who've been through this before, but and that's uh, our always main good crew, too. Yeah, but I think I think people always people who don't people like people participate in Kickstarters, like they sign up and they get products. But I don't think a lot of people understand what goes into trying to plan when they're yeah. going to do a product like that there have been many f people who have dramatically failed because they just didn't plan correctly and then they get all these backers and then they can't follow through because they yeah. didn't plan you know as well as say you guys did so yeah. it's and it's always interesting to like to talk about that with the different people because everybody seems to have a different way that they plan how they're going to do their kickstarter so i always am like when somebody does a kickstarter especially a successful one uh, uh, or even people who have had successful ones, but have also had failures to kind of talk about, okay, well, this is kind of what happened here. So it's, it's nice to see the, that little behind the scenes at prepping a Kickstarter. Yeah. And I, you know, I think the best policy to try to be as honest as possible. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you never want to tell people we don't, we're doing right. That's right. not good. Right. Um, but it, the honest truth is stuff happens. that's unexpected. And, and you do sometimes have to kind of, 
circle the wagons and figure out what's going on and figure out what your plan's going to be because it's not going the way you thought it would. Right. Right. I think that happens to everybody. And we're a pretty small company still. You know, um, there's, you know, don't really have full-time employees. It's a lot of contractors yeah. and, and the guy who owns it, right? And um, and we've grown a lot bigger as we've gone on because the Kickstarter lets you do that, right? right. So you get additional funding and then you can grow the organization and you can ramp up. Uh, and so that was something that was happening during the Kickstarter too. So as we see the numbers go up and go, okay, we can afford to do this, we can afford to do that. Um, and so it's a, a little bit of a fly by the seat of your pants process. I would say anybody who plans it all out, unless you've done it many times already, right? Uh, it's not going to go according to plan. Well, speaking <laughs> of having you having you know part timers and then the guy running it, how kind of how was the and, and maybe you don't know how was the company kind of brought together this concept and this idea all brought because you guys got a lot of people people that were from the the previous modern die twenty system and you guys bring this group together like how did that kind yeah. of come together? Well, Dave has a lot of experience with uh, running businesses okay. uh, as, as an entrepreneur and as a marketer. So uh, he's got a lot of skill in this area in bringing together a project and getting the right people on the task. So uh, he has always been a role player. You know, uh, you know, he loves games. He loves D20 Modern. He loves Spycraft. He likes that action cinema stuff. Right. And so he wanted a game where he can play the movies, right? He can... Uh, you know, if he thinks the character made the wrong choice in that action movie, he would have done this, would have worked out so much better. He wanted to bring that experience to life. That's kind of his goal. He's making the game he wants to play, right? Right. And so uh, because he went looking for the people who had done those projects, and one of the people he reached out to was Jeff Grubb, uh, who's a good friend of mine, and I happened to be staying in his house because I was recovering from leukemia at the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they were nice enough to take me in, kind of give me a place to recuperate. Because uh, I had just come back from Japan and, uh, you know, I didn't have an apartment and stuff. And it was kind of crazy. So, um, yeah, Jeff and his wife are incredibly wonderful people. But Dave contacted Jeff and Jeff's very busy. He works in the video game business these days. And he was like, yeah, no, I don't have time to be a writer. I can advise you and help a little bit, right? Uh, but, you know, there's a guy in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a good game writer and a good game designer. And he happens to have nothing but time on his hands right now. Uh, which was absolutely true because I was kind of just recovered enough to start yeah. doing things and I was job hunting. Um, and so Dave talked to me and he's like, do you want to design a role-playing game? And I'm like, oh, you try and stop me, pal. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I do. You know, right. and so I wrote him a pitch for it. And my first pitch, honestly, he didn't like. He's like, ah, maybe I better look for somebody who has more of a, a sink for the vision that I want. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. like, this is what I thought you wanted. I'm going to make what you want. I will make your game right. the way you want it to be. And so uh, I gave him a second pitch and that, that got the door open for me. And so I got the, uh, got the gig and it was kind of the first person in the door on the project. And I just, you know, I hit the ground running on it. You know, I'm just like, we made a quick financial deal for it and boom. And I was off to the races and just, you know, writing like that. And then uh, pretty soon he really wanted chase mechanics in the game, uh, you know, really good way he felt like nobody had really hit the nail with the hammer to get a chase action scene that's fun but also has a little bit of strategy to yeah. it and doesn't uh, take forever i'm ho hoping i'm that's hoping right. yeah, yeah well yeah it always depends on your game master and your players that's, but yeah, yeah that's it's pretty true. quick right and it depends on the complexity of the situation you're, you're doing right. if it's just a quick run through the woods our system's pretty fast 
if it's a complicated thing with construction machinery and machine guns and cars and they jump on motorbikes, you know, yeah, yeah. the I more complex that. it is, that's going to take a little longer to run through. But yeah, um, uh, so he went looking for somebody who'd done this on DM's Guild for 5e because okay. he wanted a 5e system and uh, he found Uber, uh, Chris Ramsey. And uh, so he joined the team and together we just started hammering out those rules nice. um, like, like mad. Uh, so we just kind of divvied up the, the pieces and got to going on it. And um, yeah, the rest of its history, as it were. And then as time went on, more and more people kind of joined the team. Uh, and a couple of the initial folks who were just kind of there to advise, um, they kind of transitioned out as people who uh, were going to go full time on it uh, came in. Right. So how did you come together? We, obviously, you mentioned 5th edition. Um, how do the mechanics actually compare to, say, a 5th edition uh, system or a, I want to even say, like a maybe a Mutants and Masterminds type Die 20 system as well, where it's it's because you've got so many moving parts and so many different things that you have in, in the works. Kind of yeah. how does it compare to those two different, you know, a 5th edition D&D and a, you know, a previous modern Die 20 or a M&M type system? Yeah, so let's see. Uh, you know, we wanted to do fifth edition just because it's super popular and everybody understands it. Mm -hmm. And as a gamer, I always like to just sit down and start playing. And so I like popular rule systems, right? Something like, oh, I like my little thing. Yeah, and I love every rule system, but when I play, I just play what's kind of everybody understands and knows, right? Yeah. So I like 5e for that reason. And actually, it's probably my favorite iteration of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you know, maybe followed by three, three, five-ish zone, uh, which I kind of cut my publishing teeth on. Right. Um, Get a little nostalgia there for it. Yeah, I like <laughs> them all, my G. There's even things in fourth edition I like, right? <laughs> um, There's some great things about 4E, but, uh, you know, overall it did have some issues. But 5E I really love, so it was a great system to start with. But we didn't want to limit ourselves. Basically, the, the, the rule was, if we have a good reason to change the system, go ahead and change it. If we don't have a good reason to change the system to serve our game, leave it like it is. Right. Uh, and so, you know, firearms are obviously very different. Uh, the way armor works is very different in modern than fantasy. And so that those are some big change areas. Uh, the way we did classes is pretty different. Early on, we decided we're going to just have 10 levels uh, because, like, they really felt that once you get past level 10, you're kind of superhuman, right? Or, you know, bordering on sort of godlike powers. So we decided, you know, we're going to cap off at level 10. And that actually was a cool thing because design space-wise for the book, it let us do twice as many classes, essentially, okay. uh, both in times of playtesting and design for each class. We have a, a much more a variety of classes to choose from. Uh, I felt, and we wanted to front load the classes. So at first level, you really felt like whatever it is you're supposed to be. So, right. and that had a problem with the multi-classing system of just taking what's in the level of the other classes. So uh, I went to my old uh, well of feats and of course feats were gonna be standard for us because I love feats, so right. it just had to be. Uh, and I think most people are playing 5e that way anyway. So it's just feats are fun. Yeah, right. so, I, I never take I, ability score adjustments since I was feats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we made feet standard, and actually the ability score adjustment is a feat. I think they're doing that with uh, uh, with the D&D one as well, which is interesting. But it's fun watching them do stuff and go, oh, yeah, that's what we were doing. Cool. Um, <laughs> we're multi-classing with feats, uh, kind of like Pathfinder 2E does. It's, it's different, but in the idea that instead of taking levels of other classes, there are specific feats that give you 
portions of what it would be to level up. So that way, if you're a level 10 sharpshooter, you're a level 10 sharpshooter, but you can also, with your feet picks, go out and take, say, a mastermind class abilities by taking uh, the mastermind training feat, or the advanced mastermind training feat. Yeah. Uh, and the, the advanced one gets you up to about the equivalent of level seven or so okay. in another class, uh, but you're not sacrificing anything in your main class. Okay. Um, you're just sacrificing the ability to take some feats. So there's still a balance. Uh, and then it gives the designer a lot of control. So we don't have kind of the stacking problems or you know, we're like, oh, if you combine this class and this class, like the attack things that they each get would, would go together. We can, because we have these feats, we can not put the things that are going to break other classes in there. And so we can design the class to be as strong in an area as we want without worrying about a combination breaking the game because the pieces that you can combo are designed thoughtfully to not do that. Okay. Um, yeah, but yeah, give you as much flavor of that class as we can pack in there. Uh, without creating broken combinations. So you have a lot of, um, a lot of, you mentioned the different IPs earlier. Yep. And let me run through a quick list. You got Escape yeah. from New York. Mm -hmm. You've got Pacific Rim. You've got Kong Skull Island. You've got Total yep. Recall, Universal Soldier, Rambo, yep. and of course my two favorites, The Crow and Highlander. Yep, that's all eight. <laughs> now... Are those going to be something where it's like you could cross them with each other? So like you're running an escape from New York and, you know, Kong Skull Island is part of that. Or is it like yeah. if you have this little thing, you can stay separate? Yeah, no, you can mush them all together. We can't in our cinematic adventures. Right. right the right. licensed property. So they have to stand on their own. Um, but you absolutely can take the rules from all of them. And they're all designed to be compatible with the rule system. Um, and then at the end of each year, we're going to publish a rules compendium, uh, like towards the end of the year. So we'll have a 2023 rules compendium, and we're going to take the pure mechanics from each of those properties, file off, you know, the, the intellectual property from them. So people can just have the mechanics separated from that and kind of integrated with one another together in a book. Okay. Uh, and plus any errata that we've developed over the year, right? Yeah. So in that way, we became a little bit of a living rule system. So each year there's going to be one of, hopefully, one of these rules compendiums that has the rules that were in cinematic adventures over the year that are usable there without violating any intellectual property and uh, are kind of, uh, you know, jiggered a little bit so that they're more neutral, let's say, uh, to, to go with the game system. Uh, and plus any errata or anything, you know, updates that we decide, yeah. you know, from feedback from players, oh, this feat's a little bit broken, we can make an updated version of the feat and put it in these rules compendiums. So that we kind of, you know, just keep everything nice and tidy. And the people who don't care about the IPs can just get the rule information uh, in this book, which is going to be kind of all rules, no setting kind of a book, right? Um, uh, but then, and, and we think as we're doing them about cross operability. So right now, Uber is working on just putting the finishing touches actually okay. on um, Pacific Rim. And I'm putting the finishing touches on Kong Skull Island. And we're doing these together because we want the same rules for the Kaiju and Pacific Rim to work for Godzilla and King Kong and that sort of thing from Kong Skull Island. Actually, we don't have Godzilla in there, but yeah, we got that's... King Kong and we got some others. Right. Uh, we've got just the pieces of the monster verse that they let us play with to start. Yeah. 
we do a good job, maybe we get access to more stuff. But right. Um, so, but we want them to be cross operable. Do you want to have your kaiju fight King Kong? Well, I guess you could do that officially. We're not saying to do that, but <laughs> yeah. players could do anything they like. Yeah, right? they can they can so, build whatever type of thing giant monster they want. Exactly. Yeah, and in the rules compendium, it'll be more like here are rules for robots, and here are rules for Titanic monsters. We're calling these Titanic scale uh, creatures and encounters. Okay. And um, the way we're doing it, I think, is very clever. Um, Goober was sort of the lead uh, idea guy for this. And in a sense, like the stats for a Titanic monster are not much different than the stats for a regular monster. And so if you really want to make a Titanic-sized ant, you can go grab an ant stat block, <laughs> declare that it's a Titanic ant, make a couple little changes, and it just works. Nice. Um, you know, but if your normal sized guy wants to attack the Titanic ant, well, it's probably going to work out. <laughs> squish. <laughs> you know? Squish. Yeah. You're not going to win, right? <laughs> there are two totally different scales. But because we're using really basically the same mechanics for the different scales, uh, it creates massive amounts of content where you could downsize a Titanic creature if you wanted to and play normal sized robots, or you could upsize normal things and yeah, what it be like? Okay. Um, so I'm really big on modularity. Every time we're making rules, I'm thinking, how can we keep this rule open, right? So that right. it can connect up with other things. And anytime we're going to do something new, I want to make sure it plugs in well to everything else we're doing. Yeah. Um, and when I design a mechanic, I want that mechanic to be something we could use for things we haven't even thought of yet, right? And so it has this nice kind of open feel. And then in any given product, we're going to frame it really nicely so it makes sense in the context. But when we need to do something else that's very different, we can still pull that mechanic. You know, we just frame it a little differently and it still works. So um, that's my grand vision. Right. Well, when you're looking at some of these, these, you know, IPs that you're working on, I'm curious because you've got some things that are very, very iconic and you can kind of very picture like, okay, this definitely needs its own set of rules. We'll say Highlander, for example. They're immortals. Yep. They have the quickening. They have, you know, little tiny powers or whatever swords appear out of nowhere, whatever whatever you choose to put in the system. But then you've got Rambo, who he's just like a military expert. How do you put together a whole book going, okay, well, what makes him different than, you know, the core rule book, you know, military guy? What makes yeah. a book like that kind of separate? And, and you know, same with like an Escape from New York sort of thing. Like, how do you make these guys that are just, they're just military guys. How do you make them a little bit special? Other yeah, than the, just having the IP. <laughs> Yeah, there's a few different things, right? Yeah, so if we're doing a class for, say, I did uh, Escape from New York is one that's basically finished. And uh, it's not a lot different in terms of, like, weaponry and combat styles and stuff. So what we do is we just kind of, you know, we try to develop new material that is a little more detailed, a little more specific than we would have put in the core rulebook. Because okay. the core rulebook is supposed to be a little open, a little generic, okay. Um, so that you can mix and match and kind of make any sort of character from the movies that you want to, but they're not super specific. As where when you get into a specific setting, it justifies making a more a, a class that fits really well in that specific setting and has some unique mechanics that you didn't do in the core rulebook. Okay, um, just to give people more choices. So like we've got a, a street warrior. Right, he's a, like a melee character, uh, and you know, like that could have been any of our strong heroes essentially. 
Yeah. But this guy's a little different. His mechanics are a little different. And the way the street warrior works is like a tough, gritty street guy. Whenever he misses or fails to do something, he builds up determination points. And, and the more determination points he gets, the better he is at things, right? And so eventually he's going to succeed. You keep trying, right? right. Um, and so this is kind of a character mechanic suggested by the rules. That would be a little specific for a core rule book because like what core Hollywood characters like that? Well, nobody. But for a gritty street punk, yeah, it makes right. a lot of sense, right? You know, and but it's also just a totally unique mechanic that you, you could use in another setting. Uh, but it was inspired by the setting that we wrote it for. Yeah. Uh, and there's always more equipment. Like you could never fill, you know, you could make a whole equipment book and maybe we will. But um, there was a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the core rule book because there's a limited space. And you know, so you, you've got to make choices. But for this book, uh, you know, if there's a thing in Escape from New York that we didn't have, it's totally justified putting it in the book, right? So little pieces of equipment, helicopters, there's lots of little things in the movie that are nice playing pieces for any game. And so we're going to put those in both because they're in the movie and because they're useful mechanics or useful little piece, bits and pieces of the game uh, that you can repurpose. So Cool. Uh, one more little thing about IP. How the hell did you get the IPs for all of these? You've got, I mean, we're looking... <laughs> Lionsgate, Legendary, Miramax, Dimension, TriStar. I mean, it's not like you went to one company and said like, hey, can we get access to some of your games? You got across the board all the stuff. How, how did you guys pull that together before you even published your first book? Well, uh, you know, Dave knows the gritty details. Okay. Uh, whether, he, whether he will reveal them or not, I don't know. But I can tell you kind of generally. Like, so yeah, yeah. part of it is he has some connections. Okay. He knows people in Hollywood who do licensing. Oh, okay. right. Maybe not movies initially, but there are people, and that's their job is to do licensing for companies. And he understands that, um, you know, there are some IPs that you have to spend a ton of money to get because they're super hot. And there are other IPs where the companies especially older ones, uh, you know, a lot of our properties a little bit older, where they want to keep the IP out in the public's mind. And there isn't always something going on to do that. And so when a company comes to you, they're still going to want some money from you, but uh, they're going to give it at a reasonable price. And they're going to work hard to make it possible for you. Okay. As where if you go to Walt Disney or something and you, you want to license something, they'll be like, hey, look, do you have $5 million? No. Well, that's how much we'd have to pay our lawyer to go figure this out, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they only do really big deals, right? Because it's just not worth their time. But other companies are in the business of having more properties that they promote, and they are interested in having partners who are going to get a new product out there and market that product. And so we're talking about Escape from New York, and we're talking about Universal Soldier, and uh, we're going to get out there and engage with the fans as these products come out. And so that just it helps enrich their brand, right? Um, so giving them this proposition and then just promising to do a good job and knowing how to talk to them and knowing how to make deals and just knocking on a lot of doors, right? Um, or sending out a lot of emails, uh, kind of, you know, put feet to the ground. Uh, and so, yeah, for everyone we get, a whole bunch we didn't get, right? Right. I was writing pitches for all kinds of crazy stuff, which was fun. And Dave's like, get ready to pitch for this tomorrow. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank God for wikis, right? right. For fan wikis. Oh right. my gosh. So helpful, right? Because I don't have time to watch every movie. Maybe, you know, we've got to do this pitch really quick. And so I'll just ramp up to speed on an IP. Because if I do a pitch, I want them to think that these people paid attention 
and are going to do it in a way that really respects the themes and the ideas of the property. Right? I'm pretty passionate about that. Do you, um, can you can you drop a few names of pitches that you kind of wish you guys got, but you didn't? Yeah, I don't think I could do that. Okay. Uh, because <laughs> the thing is, is those doors are never totally closed. Right. Right. Except the ones that are like $5 million, please. So yeah, there's one we can talk about a little bit. Uh, we wanted to do uh, Escape, uh, or no, uh, what was it? Oh, now I'm going to forget the name of it. Escape from the Museum. It's a Disney movie. Oh, okay. Uh, where the museum comes alive at night. Oh, um, night, of, night of the Museum? Night of the Museum. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be I got Escape from New York on my mind. Yeah. Yeah, because it would be a great property for kind of younger kids. It's not very violent, right? Uh, and it's just a different tone. And so that was one of our early models that we developed and we developed an adventure for it and did some, did some work, did some real work for it, uh, but we couldn't make that happen. Okay. Uh, and so, and we, we ran those at Gen Con, we ran the adventures for people, which people had a lot of fun with. So would have been a great one, uh, but maybe we can find something similar in the future. It'd be nice because yeah. I think it's cool to have a game that's angled a little younger. It's still fun to play as an adult, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like wacky, wacky action and comedy and fun puzzles and, and silly, silly situations. Yeah. What about yeah, like so, a, what about horror, anything in the horror genre? Because there's a lot of horror icon stuff in that, and I don't want to yeah. say any specific names. But was there a thought to do like let's do a horror book or uh, something along those lines? We'd like to. That's uh, that's Goober's absolute favorite genre, and it's probably one of mine too. I play Call of Cthulhu all the time. Nice. So I would love to do some, uh, especially like I think like anything by Clive Barker makes a really cool role playing setting he tends to have an expanded mythology for all his his things yeah uh and so that's really cool uh yeah i mean there's just a ton of movies and stuff i would love to do nice. um i like monster movies a little more than like slashers and stuff yeah. but uh, uh i would love to get into that and so it's it's definitely one we're always poking dave one of the things our fans most like to do is suggest movie franchises for <laughs> us right uh like hey get these guys get these guys get these guys what's the top um, what's the top so, suggested top suggested uh, movies that fans have called. Oh, I don't, John Wick is one oh, of the yeah. obvious ones, right? Like that would be a major thing to get. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so that gets suggested a whole bunch. Uh, you know, actually people often suggest ones that are already being done, which is a little difficult. <laughs> so <laughs> like, I should do aliens. I'm like, eh. yeah, that's, that just came out. Right. Like right. that would not be nice at all. Right. Um, and so, yeah, some of those kinds of things, but, um yeah so many suggestions and some of them i think are out to torture me right yeah. they're you know they're like you know they'll pick an obscure trauma film or something and i'm like <laughs> no you know erase your head what like, you know, <laughs> any anything with bruce campbell in it you know <laughs> yeah, oh you know we would love to do like evil dead yeah that might get suggested a lot yeah, course, yeah. right um so there's a lot of great things like right now there's a really hot kickstarter for monty python right oh gosh yeah I, yeah mine you know oh man what a great license to do so there's there's so many i mean it's it's an incredible smorgasbord out there it's a question uh get your hands on uh it's it can be really tough sometimes so okay cool cool all right let's talk about the art in these books because they so mm -hmm. you guys put these books together and like you get this movie theming but then you get like almost this comic book style art in there yeah. was that intentional was there like this is the type of art we want to look for or was it just like these are the artists we got together we like them let's use that well uh because we have this idea that we're sort of a spiritual successor to d20 modern right we got jeff grubb who was the author of d20 modern and stan worked on d20 modern and um so we were really 
that's like our inspiration. Uh, obviously, we're not remaking it. You know, it's not an official Watsi product or anything like that. But that's kind of our guiding stars we want to emulate. And uh, it had a kind of almost comic book style for its characters, and Dave really likes it. And so, uh, you know, we certainly didn't want to emulate their style, but we wanted that spirit, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And so we tried to get characters, and, and we found artists who are uh, kind of like that. Now, when our full book comes out, you'll see a few different styles. You know, okay. We have a few different artists. Okay. And so we have these things called scenes, and they're done in a little more modern kind of, I don't know, it's hard to describe, like a movie poster style. And our cover is a little more realistic style, but a lot of the interior animations for all the different classes and characters are that kind of, uh, not exactly a comic book, but an illustration style, let's say. Right, right with strong lines uh, and uh, not photorealistic. Um, yeah, and that's uh, partly an intentional style, partly the artist that we liked working with. Uh, right. So you may see some of those change over time, and each book has its own tone, right? So. Uh, we did the crow and um, escape from new york first and those have a dark theme right. like they're yeah. all at night right yeah um but there's some artwork in them that's a little more colorful we didn't want the whole book to be kind of drab looking right, right? you don't you don't want a, a boring looking book uh so but but we definitely had art direction for each book that kind of says this is the feel and the tone of this book and yeah. our core book is kind of bright and colorful uh, a little brutal, maybe. It was right, sort of right. like bloody weapons and things. And, <laughs> uh, you know, this is an action. It's action cinema is like guiding theme, right? And right. so it's a bit broad and a bit, you know, colorful and strong looking. Um, I don't like it. You know, it's, it's kind of the stuff. So. I, I noticed that you guys are taking, uh, uh, going a little bit above and beyond because you've got the role playing system and everything like that. But I've seen some posts where you're like, you're doing some other other stuff. I see that there's like, mm -hmm. there was posted on like your Kickstarter information page. It said something about like, you're going to have like a Highlander leaderboard sort of thing. Oh, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> uh, it said, yeah, it was like a v VTT leaderboard or something like that. So there's uh, just something else okay. uh, that was posted on there or, um, or you the the uh, roll twenty integration stuff. So like oh yeah, well that's yeah we've got partnerships with roll twenty and another VTT whose name was going to escape me at the moment. Okay. Um, well, uh, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> that's okay. Um, I don't handle that part of things very much, but uh, yeah. So we have some partnerships with the VTTs, and they're going to be doing implementations of our game. That was something we set up really early. Uh, we're not. Uh, you know, we were not directly in control with that kind of they're doing it on yeah. our behalf yeah. um and but we're you know providing them all the information to put that together yeah so that's going on and we have a partnership with sirenscape which is kind of a, a sound software to make background sounds and yeah. stuff for the game and like our example adventure that we put out um uh in our quick start guide it's into the jungle or something along those lines uh, there's a free Sirenscape package for it. It's okay. just great. It's loaded with all kinds of cool sounds. It's got like buzzing mosquitoes, which I can't stand. I turn those <laughs> off. But, but it's got so all you irritate cool your game. Of, what is that? <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, Dave is a really ambitious guy, and he just he wants to do everything. Well, right? I think it's really cool to have yeah, that so. added content, especially. I mean, you're com it's a company that started at the tail end of the pandemic, so like 
there's all this stuff that was like really evolved super quickly because of the pandemic you know the roll 20s that got super popular and obviously like things like zoom and and team meetings and google hangouts or google chat or whatever it's called all kind of boomed in the role-playing game because nobody could meet up and so here you've got you know this digital you got digital content out there you guys got your uh, uh, like I said, the, the Roll20 integration stuff coming out. and are, are there any thoughts on somebody doing like a PFSRD sort of thing for your for your system or just hope that maybe somebody else out there in the world <laughs> puts something like that together? Yeah, maybe, right? It, it's one of those things where we're open to anybody coming, like Dave will listen to anybody's pitch, right? Okay. And we're working with um, uh, Gatsworks. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, they're developing uh, a game in Everyday Heroes. It's a diesel punk uh, adventure game. Okay. And so they're partnering with us, and uh, they're going to be using the Everyday Hero system to drive nice. the engine on that game. And we've been talking to them, talking to their designers, kind of feeding them ideas because we're still putting the final, you know, right. polish and spit on everything. Uh, and so, but we we keep them informed so that they they can play along, and we're kind of open to anybody, right? So if somebody likes our system and you want to build on it. Uh, and partner with us both to you know advertise things and to put your game together and to get some support from our designers and our team. Uh, totally open to that. Um, we haven't published our license yet, but we're gonna have a compatibility license. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, we're an open gaming license product, so you can use our mechanics, right? Nobody will stop you. Uh, we won't complain. Um, but uh, we are going to have like a $50 license agreement or something like that, you know, kind of a, enough money to kind of people aren't just going to like spam us with stuff. People yeah. who are serious so, enough. So, so you have serious right? people to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or at least semi serious, like enough that you're willing to put up a small amount of money to say, right. yes, I, I care and I actually want to make a product, right? Other than I just had an idea. Yeah. Um, and uh, ideas are great, by the way. It's just we have limited time. So we have to, you know, uh, work with people that are going to make something, hopefully. Um, so we'll have a license like that, and that lets you use the Everyday Heroes logo and compatibility logo and some other stuff, and we'll cross-market with you, right? And we'll, you yeah. know, for free, put stuff on our thing to promote your thing, and uh, hopefully you'll put stuff, our stuff on your thing, et cetera, just by using the logo, of course, it builds a brand. So yeah. we really have an ambition to make this uh, a broad umbrella of a game, uh, kind of hopefully the hub of like action cinema uh, role-playing, yeah. you know, where Dungeons and Dragons is the hub of fantasy gaming. And there's some others you might argue are like the hub of horror gaming. Uh, so we're aiming to be the hub of kind of action gaming. Yeah, that'd be um, cool. And we're willing to, yeah, support other people and really try to help them uh, do whatever their ambition is. I don't know how uh, many Because times... we don't have enough time to do everything, right? You yeah. know, because we'd love to see all of that. We'd love to see a computer game We've had a few people approach us for translating. We just don't have the infrastructure to do that ourselves right now. But right. if somebody else is willing to partner up, then uh, we'll get that done. So yeah, I encourage people to reach out to us. Um, I'm easy to find. Um, the company is pretty easy to, to get contact info for. So Well, I don't know how many times, you know, in the, the early role-playing career, I'm like, God, I really wish I could do this in a role-playing game. Well, well, let's just take this and we'll just have to make stuff up and play this XYZ game that we want to play yeah. after this movie we just saw. And now that's going to be an option, and that's super awesome, uh, especially considering most of the ones we wanted to do that with our titles that you guys actually have. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you have uh, events coming up, uh, conventions. You guys are going to probably be at Gen Con next year, I'm assuming. 
Yeah, we'll be at Gen Con next year. I believe we're going to be at Origins. Okay. Um, so we're looking to get that set up. Um, uh, I don't think we have any other hard plans at the moment for conventions. Okay. It's possible. Uh, that's kind of more the, the marketing side of the business, which I don't yeah. interface with as often. Right, right. right. Or follow. Just too many people, too many people. We'll just have to get you all on all at once, and then you guys can just answer all of the questions, which will probably just turn into, you know, laughing and chatting about whatever people come up with at the time. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, as we get closer to, like, the game coming out in stores, because we're definitely mm-hmm. going to be on store shelves and everything, we've got all the uh, the big distributors lined up to work with us. Uh, you know, if that comes on, it will be a little less intense as we try to get give birth to the core rule book, which is right. a massive project. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, you probably have a, a good, be pretty easy to get some of the other folks on right now. It's the tough because yeah. everybody's scrambling. There, right. So. Right. Well, I'm glad you were able to hang out and join us for this and to talk about it on this amazing Halloween evening. We're talking about, yeah. I, I dressed up as the crow for my senior pictures. So, I mean, it's perfect to talk about some of these characters on, uh, on Halloween. So, uh, yeah, thanks totally. so much for, for joining. You are on Twitter at SigTrent. Um, and Evil Genius Games, they can find on Twitter, Evil Genius Games. Uh, Instagram, evil.genius.games. Facebook, backslash Evil Genius Games and evilgeniusgames.com. Uh, I think I got all the social medias in the website, right? I think so. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. Stick around for the people listening in our live stream. We're going to get to the, your Q&A, so go ahead and post them in the chat, and we'll uh, try and answer all of your questions in just a moment. But I do want to let you guys know our upcoming guests. We're talking Halloween season, spooky season. Well, it doesn't get any spookier than this. Live on November 14th from Travel Channel and Discovery Plus, we're going to be joined by paranormal investigator Dave Schrader. He's from the Holzer Files on the Travel Channel, and the Ghosts of Devil's Perch just came out. He's also the host of the Paranormal 60. He's going to be joining us again November 14th. The podcast will be live November 15th, but uh, you can join us and ask your own questions on the 14th. Also, on the 28th, we're going to get comic book writer and artist Eric Burnham is going to be joining us. He's worked on Ghostbusters, Godzilla, Ninja Turtles, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and so many more comic books. The list is a mile long. That's November 28th. The podcast will be available on the 29th. And December 12th, professional wrestling legend, Wild Bill Irwin, a.k.a. The Goon, and many other names are just some of his names. He's worked for the WWE, WCW, AWA, WCCW, NWA. The list goes on and on and on. That's going to be December 12th, and that episode will be live and available on December 13th. That may turn into a two-episode show, so make sure to join us for that. So, everybody who is listening, please rate, review, subscribe, click all of the links and all of the buttons, go and check out our guest, and check out our past episodes. All of that stuff helps us and helps our guests. So, for Siegfried Trent, I am Nick, and thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. Yeah.